Well, good morning. I'm glad that you're here. My name is Daniel, one of the pastors, and uh, welcome to Christ Central Church. Uh, if, it's really hard for me to believe that Thanksgiving and Christmas are already kind of rolling upon us, and I hope if you missed the announcement earlier that you would come to the Thanksgiving potluck, our annual Thanksgiving potluck this Thursday uh, at the Durham Armory. It's going to be a great time, hundreds of people gathering together, eating good food, and enjoying one another and giving thanks, and I think it feels a little bit like what heaven's going to feel like, so I hope you'll come uh, and invite people to attend with you. Uh, also, Advent is near. Advent is the season in the church that we use to prepare for Christmas, and Advent starts December 3rd, and uh, you can be on the lookout. We're going to be providing some devotional resources for Advent, family devotional resources, as Timothy said earlier. We're also going to be having a party December 7th uh, that will be a night of celebration. It's going to be a worship hymn sing evening as well as our worship team leads us. Uh, and they'll also be releasing their album uh, around the same time. And we're going to be preaching during Advent through the songs of Christmas, uh, looking at four songs in Luke's Gospel, chapter 1 and chapter 2 of Luke's Gospel. Uh, and so uh, looking forward to that as well. Uh, and until then, we are going to uh, be continuing in our series in Exodus, but I do hope, as I mentioned those things, Thanksgiving and Christmas and Advent, that you'll use these as opportunities to reach out to your friends and neighbors and co-workers and invite them uh, to attend uh, the many things that we're going to be doing during this season of Thanksgiving and Advent and Christmas. Uh, but this morning we continue uh, as we've been looking all fall in Exodus in the Old Testament. We're going to look this morning at Exodus chapter 19, Next week, we're going to look at Exodus chapter 20, and I think it's vital that we don't rush over chapter 19 so that we get to a well-known part of the Old Testament for many of us, Exodus 20 to 23, which is God giving the Mosaic Law. For many of us, we know that as God giving the Ten Commandments. I think understanding chapter 19 is essential. It's essential for us to understand God giving the law. Chapter 19 has been referred by many theologians as one of the most important chapters in the Old Testament. So I'm hopeful that as we look at this week and next, that we're going to see how God's grace and God's law go hand in hand. That there's no such thing as law versus grace, but God's grace and God's law go hand in hand. So I'm going to read from Exodus 19, verses 1 to 6 this morning. If you're able I'm going to ask you to stand as we read God's Word this morning. Exodus chapter 19, verses 1 to 6. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. Let's pray. God, we need you to open our eyes and open our hearts. To behold you, to behold the truths of 
who you are to encounter you this morning in your word, which is living and active. I pray you would bring it to life, that the, the ink that we just read on these pages would, would feel fresh to us, like they were just written from you to us, that you would change us, that you would shape us and mold us to the people you've called us to be, because we've been with you this morning, we've been under your word this morning. Remove me, the preacher, so that Christ is exalted, I pray. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. amen. You can have a seat. Well, once upon a time, there was an old man who wished so dearly to have a son that he carved a boy out of wood. That night, the man fell asleep, and a fairy entered the workshop and brought the puppet to life. The fairy tells the puppet that if he proves himself to be brave, truthful, and unselfish, he can become a real boy. And the puppet must overcome many obstacles to become real. Obstacles of traveling in a puppet show, to living on Pleasure Island, to setting out to rescue his father from the belly of a giant well. And the son is brave. He saves his father, Geppetto, from the giant well. And they wash up on the shore. And the good fairy arrives as they lay there on the shore and decides that the puppet has proved himself to be brave, truthful, and unselfish. So Pinocchio is brought to life as a real boy. Pinocchio. It's one of Disney's most celebrated films of all times. It's actually one of only a handful of movies to receive a perfect rating on Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> Have you ever noticed how many of the stories that we love center on the search for identity? Pinocchio. Beauty and the Beast, Cinderella, stories of new identity granted or true identity recovered. And it's not just fairy tales. Ralph Ellison, who's the author of the novel Invisible Man, was once asked, would you say that the search for identity is primarily an American theme? And he answered, it is the American theme. The search for identity dominates our lives. And the search for identity dominated the lives of the Israelites. Israel was God's chosen people. That's who they were. That was their identity. And then through famine and an evil oppressor, Pharaoh, they, they're enslaved. And God delivers them from the bondage and oppression of Egypt. Delivers them through the Red Sea. They're journeying through the wilderness. And while in the wilderness, they're complaining and they're afraid. They want to go back to Egypt. But while in the wilderness, God stays patient with his people and he gives gifts to his people. He gives the gift of bread and of water, Sabbath rest. And along their wilderness journey, God is giving gifts to remind Israel who they are and who God is to them. The wilderness is where Israel, Israel was relearning their identity. Their identity was being redefined. And the wilderness, the wilderness is where our lives begin to be redefined. The wilderness is where our God shapes, molds, and makes us what he's always intended us to be, his image bearers, reflecting his glory in the world. Though we still struggle, like Israel, with the patterns of Egypt that remain in our hearts. And this is important for us to comprehend, because I think that the church, at least in the past 50 plus years, 
has used language to describe the identity of a Christian that I think could be misunderstood and is not very helpful. One of the most prominent ways that the evangelical church has identified a Christian is by the brand born again. Born again. I know it's an older phrase for some. Growing up for me, I can't tell you how many times I was asked, are you born again? That comes from the Gospel of John, but I think it, it can give us a misconception uh, if we use it all the time as our, our main identity marker. Because being born again could be taken to mean once you come to faith in Christ and you're delivered by faith in Christ, you're born again and everything changes. And you forget your past and you have this new life and, this, and the best life lies ahead of you. And rarely are we told that once you are delivered by faith in Christ, once you place your faith in Jesus, the hardest times are still ahead. And it's in these hard times that we learn and become the identity God has always intended. His people bearing His image, reflecting His glory. This is the picture of Israel in Exodus. Delivered, birthed through the trauma of Egypt. Coming out of bondage, they're wandering in the wilderness, they're experiencing difficult times, and God is patient. He understands Israel's a frightened child. I mean, it makes sense that Israel would be frustrated and afraid and and maybe wanting to go back to Egypt. And so, like a good parent, God provides for his children. He gives bread and he gives water. He's providing because God has a design for Israel. Israel was to become what God's people were created to be. A queen. A queen, if you will. A beautiful and compelling people. But it would take some work to get there. So God leads his people to camp at this mountain named Sinai. And God has been providing gifts in Israel's wilderness journey, but Sinai would be the greatest gift. Sinai would not be this overnight camping trip. It's an 11-month campsite. Israel is in the wilderness for 40 years, we know. Brief description is given to 38 of these years in our Bibles. Yet we have 59 chapters in our Bible detailing the description of these 11 months of Israel camped at Sinai. From Exodus chapter 19 to Numbers chapter 10 describes Israel camped at Sinai. Because it's here at Sinai, between Egypt and the Promised Land, That Israel was learning and becoming what God had always intended his people to be. And next week we're going to look at the law particularly and how the law is a gift to God's people. But before we understand and, and we can understand God's law as a gift, we have to spend some time here in chapter 19 and understand that God's people have an identity, that we have an identity. An identity of being a treasured people with a special purpose. A treasured people with a special purpose. Chapter 19 begins in verse 1, on the third new moon. That's a very different way than other chapters of Exodus and their narratives have begun. The Hebrew narrative usually begins by the words, and it happened. But chapter 19 begins on the third new moon because it's marking this monstrous moment in the narrative of Israel's redemptive journey. By beginning this way, the author is is marking the beginning of a theme that stands alone. Israel camping at Sinai. 
redefining their identity and learning who God has always intended them to be. You know, growing up, I had a father who was in the military. My mother worked on the military base, and about five times a week, we would drive onto the base, and every time we drove onto the base, we were required to give identification. It was an identification checkpoint. The guards checked who we were. Sinai is Israel going through an identification checkpoint. God was going to be reminding them, this is who you are, and this is who I am to you. Verse 3, Moses goes up to God to meet God on the top of the mountain. If you've been here, then you know Moses has kind of come full circle in this story of Exodus. In chapter 3 of Exodus, he meets God on Mount Horeb at the burning bush. Now on this mountain, God will renew his covenant with Moses and God's people. He will remind them of his love commitment to them as his people. And then verses 4 to 6 are beautiful portions of Scripture. They've been called by many the heart of the Old Testament. And it's here we see Israel's identity and therefore our identity as a treasured people with a special purpose. God tells Moses to tell Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Before God reminds Israel who they are in the present, he reminds them what he has done for them in the past. I bore you on eagles' wings. Every time I read this, or any reference of God being like an eagle, I immediately go back to my Catholic growing up days. I grew up going to Catholic church and a Catholic school, and we sang a hymn that's still stuck in my head. And it's this hymn, and he will raise you up on eagles' wings, bear you on the breath of dawn, and make you to shine like the sun, and hold you in the palm of his hands. The Bible speaks of God being like an eagle. And it speaks of God being like an eagle in two ways. The first is God's like an eagle, and he is a fierce predator. He is a fierce predator who swept in and delivered the Israelites from the hand of Pharaoh. Kind of like my Auburn football team who shouts war eagle swept in and destroyed the Georgia Bulldogs last night. <laughs> Sorry, Bulldog fans. I know that y'all are here. I had to get in. We've lost like nine of the last 11 and I just had to. I was praying all week, Lord, that would be so good time. To, if, we, if, I, if we won, I could slip that in. And we won 40 to 17, if you don't know. Um, but God is like a fierce predator, sweeping in and delivering the Israelites from the hand of Pharaoh. The second way God's like an eagle is that he's a protector. Like a mother eagle who would push her eaglets out of the nest encouraging them to grow up and to fly. And if the eaglet couldn't fly, the mother would swoop down, catch them by her own wing, and raise her up. God prods Israel forward, encouraging them to grow up, but he's never left Israel. And they're stumbling and they're falling. He's always been there to raise them up on his wing. And this is what God has done for you and for me. He has fought for us. He has rescued us from the depth of our bondage. He's delivered you and me from the penalty and the power of sin. And He wants us to grow up. He wants us to grow up and to be what He's created us to be. And He's never left us. Though we stumble and fall, God is always there to carry us on His wing. And He holds you in the palm 
of his hand. God continues his speech in verse 5. He says, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession. Christianity sets itself apart from all other religions by a simple order. Right? Which is it? Do I keep the law of God so that I may be accepted, or do I keep the law because I have been accepted? These are utterly divergent approaches to God and to God's law. And verses 4 and 5 are carefully worded. God says, I have released you. I have rescued you. I have brought you to myself like an eagle. Verse 5, now I want you to obey me. We're going to look again next week more at the law we're called to obey. In one sense, we are already God's treasured possession because we've been redeemed with a price. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus has redeemed us and purchased us. But through our relationship with God and through obedience to His law, we become that which He has already declared us to be, His prized possession, His trophy to declare His glory unto the world. You know, kings were wealthy in this time, and, and there were special objects of wealth that meant more than others. And that's what's meant here in the Hebrew, this treasured possession. It's a prized possession, something that meant more than anything else to the king. And what do you do with your most prized possession? You protect them, whatever that possession might be. You keep your eye on it. You always know where it is. Maybe it's a family heirloom. It's a photo that maybe means something to you. Maybe you have a safe where you lock your prized possessions away. You, you want to guard and protect it. I think about my two sons. When I'm with my two boys, I, I'm guarding and I'm protecting and I'm keeping my eye on them. If they fall, I'm quick to come and lift them up and hold them. There's little else that means as much to me as my two sons. One of the things Rachel and I love to do with them is we like to play baseball. We do it inside our, our home. We do it outside. We throw the ball. They throw it back. They run the bases. Right? My oldest is only three and a half, but he loves to score home runs, so he hits and he runs the base, bases backwards, but we don't care. We, we celebrate scores the home run and we celebrate it's so much fun one of my seminary professors who's also a, a trained psychologist tells told us a story in seminary about a grown man that he was counseling and the grown man was sharing about how when he was little all he longed for was the affection of his father he longed for the day his dad would just play catch with him to throw the baseball with him in his backyard but the father was too busy busy with work, busy with travel. And the counselor said it felt like a holy moment. So he leaned toward this 50-year-old man, and he said, I would love to play catch with you. He said the 50-year-old man just broke down, bawling, crying, as the longing he had as a, as a small boy still remained, to have the affection of his father. That's what we all long for, affection attention, love. And God is reminding Israel, you are my people. You are my beloved. You are mine. I love being with you. God loves being with you, church. You are his treasured possession. Our search for identity is a search for significance. And God wants you to believe that you are significant because you are his greatest treasure. He's telling Israel as they wander in the wilderness, remember your identity. 
You are a people that I've promised to watch over, protect. I take great delight in you. I pick you up when you fall. I will hold you in my arms. This is our identity. When God created the world, he said all things were good. But when he created man and woman, he said it's very good. Humanity is God's prized creation. But sin broke our relationship with God, and God has been through Christ redeeming and delivering his people since that fall into sin. And as he delivers us, he calls us to walk with him in the wilderness of our lives. And he wants us to know that he takes great delight in us. There are a few things that that give him as much delight as we do. Our God rejoices over us. He sings over us. He loves us. We have to remember that we are God's treasured people. For this is what will compel us to obey and to walk in the ways that he wants us to walk. The next thing we see about our identity, verse 6, writes, And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, God says to Moses. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Israel was not just a treasured people. They had a special purpose, as do we, to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Holy doesn't mean morally pure. It means set apart unto a task. And that task is to be a whole collection of priests. Everyone in the kingdom, a priest. Priests were go-betweens, standing in the gap between man and God. Jesus Christ is the ultimate high priest, as Hebrews in the New Testament tells us. He's the one who stands in the gap between the world and God through his own sacrificial death on the cross. Through the cross, Jesus reconciles the world unto God. God is telling Israel, You are to be a kingdom of priests, everyone a priest, a holy people, a nation that stands in the gap between the world and God. And maybe you've heard the term before, the priesthood of all believers. That's not not like an evangelical, like last hundred year term. It's not a New Testament concept. It is a longstanding design from the beginning. Every person in relationship with God is to be a priest unto the world. Peter ends in his commentary wrote this, As holy and priestly, Israel is the means by which God will, as his plan unfolds more and more, bring the nations to have a knowledge of him. The way we bring the nations to have a knowledge of God is not by fixing ourselves, but showing the world the value of knowing and walking with God. So we walk with him in relationship and we take delight in his delight over us. We are compelled to live in his ways. And God is saying this has international implications. As we live as a set-apart people, live in obedience to his law, we showcase to the world the manufacturer's design for humanity. We show the world that we do things differently. We do life differently. I've heard a few people say this before, that our current Western cultural climate encourages us to be promiscuous with our sex and stingy with our money. But Christians have always been marked by those who are promiscuous with our money, giving it away generously, not storing up treasures on earth but in heaven. We take care of the poor. We adopt children who have no homes. We build homes for those without homes. This is what Christians do. And we're stingy with our sex. We see sexuality as being deeply sacred and holy. It's intended to be a signpost to deeper spiritual realities. We don't make crude jokes about it. 
We protect any and all who have been sexually harassed or sexually abused. We don't give sex to anyone but to the one we make serious covenantal promises with. This has been our identity as Christians. Different, set apart. If you're a Christian here this morning, you have to ask yourself, is there anything distinctive at all about the manner in which I live my life? Is my life distinctive enough that my neighbors and my co-workers know the character and the heart of God whom I claim to serve? The question is, are you different? Now maybe this verse made you think of a New Testament passage, especially if you're in the women's Wednesday morning Bible study, going through 1 Peter chapter 2. Because listen to 1 Peter chapter 2, 9 to 12. It sounds a lot like Exodus 19. But you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles, and we could insert those who journey in the wilderness, as we're exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against our souls. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, which can be translated among the world. Keep your conduct honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. Do you follow the biblical order? I mean, first Peter's giving us our identity yet again. We are saved in Jesus by his life death and resurrection we're called out of darkness brought into the kingdom of light once not a people but now through christ we are the redeemed people of god before christ we had not received mercy but in christ we receive mercy therefore we live for him we abstain from the passions of the flesh we keep our conduct in such a way that the world notices we live in such a way that the world sees our lives and our good deeds And the ultimate end is for our Father's glory in heaven. Jesus does not save us from the world for our own sake. Rather, he saves us to himself for the sake of the world and his glory. We're a treasured people with a special purpose. And this is so different than our current cultural understandings of a search for identity. Think of another Disney movie that was just a blockbuster hit. Recent movie, Frozen. I saw many little girls dressed up like Elsa for Halloween. Listen to Elsa's song. It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. There's no right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Let it go. Let it go. This is the modern Western mindset of personal identity. Autonomy authenticity, individuality, and freedom. But God wants us to know and believe this morning that our identity is that we are a people in a love relationship with our God by faith in Christ. And then Jesus leads us to experience the delight of our Heavenly Father and therefore to live lives that are set apart according to His ways for the sake of the world and for His glory. Treasured people, with a special purpose. Let's pray. God, I ask that you would that you would help us to believe 
your great delight over us. The redemption that we have in Christ, and then Lord, help us to know that you have given us a special purpose in this world. Whether that's through new jobs, as was shared earlier, through current jobs, through our apartments that we live in, or the neighborhoods that we live in, friends that we make, and activities that we participate in. Lord, all of these things are spheres you have placed us in with a purpose to showcase your great design unto the world. Lord, help us to, to live dependent upon your grace. We cannot walk in your ways with great delight until we know and are compelled by your great delight in us. So Lord, help us to, to know that. And we thank you for this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.